certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Welcome to part two of this special catch-up episode of Claremont in Conversation. I'm Natalie Bongiolo and joining me is the West Australian's legal affairs editor, Tim Clark. Tim, yesterday we discussed the first several weeks of the trial in which you took us through the witnesses who gave evidence right up until the time that the three young women disappeared. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to move on to the witnesses who were called after the last sightings. And again, this was really quite difficult and distressing testimony. Yeah, that's right, Nat. So uh, particularly in Sarah's case, it's what we call a circumstantial case, as we discussed yesterday. Because there is no body with Sarah, um, the prosecution are having to bring the the case together and use uh, evidence that's not directly from Sarah or necessarily even um, about Sarah um, to... Uh, bring the cases together as they try to. And uh, as you said, um, when we were within the civilian witnesses, so-called civilian witnesses in the first month, five weeks of the trial, one of the strongest pieces of circumstantial evidence connected to Sarah's case was something that after happened after her last sighting. Um, Sarah was on her way to Mosburn Park, which is quite close, another uh, salubrious suburb quite close to Claremont. Um, And that's why that's the uh, instruction that she'd given to the cab um, company when she rang them. And that's where, um, for all intents and purposes, we think she was headed. About uh, three o'clock that morning in Mosman Park, uh, which is a quiet um, su- suburb, um, relatively well healed. Um, there was something that residents there remembered 25 years on, a series of screams that they all heard various um, different areas but close enough all to hear the scream and all when you um, cross-matched those witness statements all um, pinpointing a point on a road at Mosburn Park right by a telephone box they were uh, as you said now disturbing um, confronting and um, compelling uh, evidence about what these people, all, all these people said they heard and they were all very clear of what they heard um, all those years later Judith Borrett who was one of the witnesses that, that came to court um, her words um, summed it all up really, um, the screams she said she heard were desperate, blood curdling terrible, terrible screams something that you will never forget one after the other very high pitched from a female and the multiple accounts were very similar in that regard Uh, one of the accounts um, was from a couple that had actually gone to bed were in bed uh, asleep and these screams were loud enough to wake them and uh, loud enough to disturb them enough that they went out on their own balcony to see if they could see anything from from the area they thought they could um, they described how they looked across their lawn of the apartment building uh, through or over some trees and towards where they thought they saw the screams and the testimony was that there was a car, white car or light coloured car with distinctive rear taillights that they saw break and then leave uh, and this, this was in moments of, of the scream happening um, but as we talked about yesterday, sort of unanswered questions. One of the unanswered questions from all of this evidence was why, if these screams were so disturbing, didn't anyone go and maybe investigate further? We've all been in that situation, I'm sure, dead of night, tired, woken up, um, quite, you know, disturbed and discombobulated, and maybe you make that split-second decision not to go and investigate. Um... If someone had, the story might have been completely different. But as it is, that is the story that it that as it stands. Um, and given the time, given the area, and given the uh, unusual nature of the events, um, Justice Hall will be asked to draw the conclusion from um, all of those factors that those screams came from Sarah um, in the act of her being abducted 
um, and taken um, to away to wherever she is now because that's that's the one thing we don't know. And it was so interesting, as you mentioned, that you know these witnesses were asked, um, "Did you call police when you heard these screams? What did you do when you heard those these screams?" And as you've said, some of them said, oh, you know, I wasn't sure what it was. I thought maybe it was a domestic of some sort. Mm. Um, And then some of them were quite upset when they went on to say, you know, in hindsight now, I wish I had. Mm, Yeah. But I I didn't. Yeah, hindsight, obviously, (laughs) is a a wonderful thing. Yeah. Um, And it was actually Sarah's disappearance or the news of Sarah's disappearance, um, the after the weekend, following into the week, that actually did prompt a couple of those people to contact Crime Stoppers and all the mm. police to report what they'd said. Um, and those reports um, were not made public at the time, but did lie on the file. And all those people were able to come and give evidence in person um, so many years later. And as you said, Nat, they were, some of them were very, very upset um, by still by what they'd heard and and. Uh, what uh, those screams might might mean. Now, a few months later, um, in Wellard, sadly and shockingly, very, very similar stories we heard in court of witnesses who also reported being woken by, again, blood-curdling, terrible screams. Yeah, yeah. So Wellard is um, around... 40 kilometres south of Perth. Uh, at that time, it was a semi-rural area. It's a little bit more built up now, but still mostly green and not concrete. Um, then it was all green and v- hardly any concrete, maybe four or five houses dotted within a, 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 an area um, of you know two or three um, kilometre radius. Um, and again, uh, within hours of Jane, the, the time we know that Jane was last seen and, and w- went missing... Um, again, more reports of more screams from multiple sources at different points on the compass, but they all, again, pointed towards a similar area of where they thought that the, those screams came from. And that point was very, very close to ultimately where Jane's body was discovered. And again, very similar descriptions. They were This, this wasn't a, a plaintive cry or a... Someone, uh, you know, play fighting or something. This this was a scream that left a distinctive and um, memory and, and distinctive feel in the persons that heard them. Um, so Kenneth Mitchell, he was one of the um, local Wellard residents who who again came to court all those years later and was asked to de- describe it in the in the first person. And and he, the way he described it was. It was very plain, very clear, and very traumatic. Then all of a sudden, it dissipated, and it was dead, quiet, and still. And you can imagine, again, what those persons who heard those screams, then um, many weeks later, as it turned out, found out that within uh, kilometers, in some cases, within meters of their homes, uh, James' body had been lying there um, for all that time, partially covered, but um, crucially undiscovered. Yeah, this was really, at the time when we heard this evidence in court, it really was so chilling, um, the way they told of the scream and how they heard it, and, and the fact that this was such a desperate, desperate scream mm. that was stopped mid-scream. Yeah. Um, so Ian and Cheryl Sturkey were another couple that were again together, heard the scream together, um, and their description um, was, never in my life have I heard a scream like that, and I never want to hear it again. That was Mrs. Sturkey's, um, the way she described it. Um, she might not have wanted to recall it, but she did, um, and she she did so in, in, in a way that left um, an impression on, on everyone who heard that um, testimony in court. Now, the very next morning after this, a fellow was riding his horse and he gets spooked and discovers something very interesting. And he told you about this in court. Mm, yes. So, uh, yeah, this is... Um this is a, this, we hadn't heard this. We, a lot of this detail, I must stress, we, had not been um, made public at all 
um, during the, the vast scan of this investigation, which goes over 23 years. The police, um, for various reasons, mostly um, operational, wanted to keep as, as much back as they could while trying to inform the public as much as they could. And this, this was um, one of the uh, one of the details um, that um, had not been um, made public until very late in the piece, and then n- not be public at all in detail until we we heard this testimony in court. So Paul Langenbach was riding his horse um, down um, the rural track um, that we've we, we've we've come to know those of us who followed this case in this trial so well. Um, there was a riding school just at the, the, the bottom of the road um, and there was a, a, a regular track that a lot of the riders took which took them away from the sort of semi-covered um, road and onto tracks and back roads and hedges and so they could enjoy um, the, the beautiful um, rural Perth countryside while you know putting their horses through their paces. Uh, Mr. Langenbach was making his way back down towards the riding school on the um, w- what was a sort of semi-covered um, track at the time, and he and he spotted something completely out of the ordinary. He spotted a watch, and it was a nice watch. It was a guess watch um, that it immediately caught his eye, um, as it would. Um, it was silver in colour. It was it was a distinctive design, um, and it was it, you know back in the day it would have probably been worth a. a, a, a a pretty penny as well um so he jumped off his horse um inspected the watch thought well that's a, that's that's a lucky find and pocketed it um and then got back on his horse and, and and went about his day um he had no idea what he'd found no. until um weeks and weeks and weeks later that's right. when um perth was that I mean that Saturday that that when the news came out that that some uh, another member of the public that was also on that track for p- completely innocent purposes uh, enjoying a day out with their children um, and a completely random series of events led them to find Jane's body um, off the beaten track but not uh, only by meters partially covered. Um, and in uh, in a in a in a very um, degraded and and decomposed state, um, and what Mr. Langenbach had found was Jane's watch. Yeah, that's right. And it was interesting because you obviously said he found this watch, and it was only later that we saw the footage um, from the uh, Claremont area where we could see Jane was wearing mm. this gets guess watched on the night that she disappeared. Mm. Now, not long after this, locals who lived in the area, and as you said, it was a very, um, you know, very early time in the area. There wasn't many people living there, but locals who did live in the area, as they were driving past this particular place, they had started to notice this terrible smell. And as they would go by, they would wind their windows up and they had mentioned this to each other and, and this was mentioned in court. Yeah, that was one of the circumstances, but no one um, really investigated that any further than um, that there was, uh, say, rural area, riding school, um, uh, wildlife around. So uh, it wasn't really thought of as anything particularly sinister at the time. But now, with hindsight, when we can put the pieces all together, um, that was another clue that, um, that, that something very terrible had happened at that spot um, and something um, equally terrible was awaiting um, that the person who ultimately did um, discover Jane 55 days after she went missing. And as you mentioned, it was a very, very bizarre set of circumstances that did lead to the discovery of Jane's body. Yeah. Um, When you put um, a rural area, um, a rogue chicken, Mm. some death lilies, and a, and a family on a day out together, um, you wouldn't necessarily come up with the with the um, the horrible um, conclusion that they came to. But that's that's what happened. This family was out on a drive um, up that um, that up, up that rural road in Wellard. Um, a chicken ran across their path. Um, they braked to um, avoid hitting it in the car, and then the children in that car begged their mum and dad that they could go and chase the chicken, <laughs> which they did. 
Um, the 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 mum in that car looked to her left and saw the most amazing crop of death lilies that she had ever ever seen in her life. Arum lilies, huge, which grow wild in in Perth, but even now she said she'd never seen anything like these, the size and the scale. Uh, as the children were chasing the chicken, she got out to in- investigate and go and pick some of these lilies. She picked one, she picked another, and then there was a, a particularly large one a, a little bit further back from the from the from the copse that she was picking them from. And as she went, stepped into the very secluded bush area, that's when she looked down, um, saw an ankle, saw a leg, and then looked up and realised um, what she was seeing was a body, um, a decomposed body. Um, her immediate reaction was horror obviously um, she stepped back she called her husband who then went to the riding school um, reported the find um, and most poignantly the lady who did discover Jane said that she refused to leave her because she didn't want to leave her on her own anymore Well, she didn't um, and then the authorities came and, uh, and that was when um, what she thought she'd found was confirmed and just to add to this very unusual and extraordinary um, coincidences, almost at the same time up the road, a young couple are on a horse and they see a knife on the ground. Mm, yeah, almost simultaneously, within moments of each other, minutes, certainly within the same half an hour, a young couple doing exactly the same thing as Mr Langenbach, having a ride on a Saturday afternoon. They're coming down towards the... Um, w- w- which has now become very quickly a crime scene. Uh, they're coming down on their horses, but as they are doing that, they spot a knife, um, a brown-handled um, pocket knife, folded, but obviously out of place it, it, at the side of the road. Um, and again, they, 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 it, it, it strikes them as so unusual that the, uh, the gentleman picks the knife up, um, puts it in his pocket, and it is literally as they are walking down that tra- or riding down that track that they come across this young lady her husband their children and by now a, a couple of um, very um, uh, swiftly dispatched police officers um, who are telling them to stand back telling them to r- remove themselves which they do um, but at the same time they made the police aware very quickly that what they'd found w- might be of interest to them and it certainly was it was a very emotional testimony, and, and when you were telling us about it in the podcast, um, you know, you told us how, for these witnesses, they broke down mm. as they told the court about this and, and this fact that they just could not leave this young woman's mm. body alone in the bushes while they waited for the police to arrive. Yeah, um, it's difficult to hear, difficult to talk about, and obviously difficult to say all those years on um, in front of all those people. Um including um, Jane's family. But um, the witness did did an amazing job, I've got to say, in, in, in uh, relaying the information as, as calmly and as, um, and as thoroughly as she could for, the, for the, but, uh, the sake of the court and the sake of the trial, but um, also did it in a way that left, uh, again, no one in any doubt uh, what this event, uh, the impact it has had on her um, uh, for the last 24, five years or so and um, obviously um, it also also became uh, an absolutely crucial um, discovery um, in the whole investigation because as we know with Sarah now um, nobody uh, means uh, very little evidence but Jane's body um, has provided uh, numerous um, investigative opportunities it also provided the opportunity for her family to um, to farewell her um, properly and and with the dignity and grace that she um, obviously deserved. Moving forward to March in 1997, um, following the disappearance of Kira Glennon, that night is very interesting because what you heard in court is Bradley Edwards had a weekend getaway planned Mm. with friends in Mandra. Yeah which is a sleepy little suburb an hour south of Perth. We used to be. It's built up now, but back then it was a very quiet area um, where retirees lived, and he didn't show. Correct. And that, um, and this, to my mind, this is, this is obviously circumstantial evidence, but it's, 
it, it was qu- it was quite compelling and quite detailed and the reason it was so detailed is the gentleman so this was a gentleman who was friends with mr edwards had been for several years they'd got close through work and and, and socializing the gentleman had been diagnosed with a very serious medical condition just just a few days earlier and um had taken some time off work and had this holiday home down south and he wanted to go there to to clear his mind to get his head around this this very serious um, diagnosis that had been handed to him so him and his wife went and he wanted someone he didn't want to just unload on his wife so he asked mr edwards to accompany him we'll come down after work on friday so we can uh, you know just hang out have a beer have a chat i mean you know i need my friends around me and it was very clear to him that 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 those were the plans but on the uh, on the night he was due to arrive, Mr. Edwards didn't. Um, he was nowhere to be seen, and he only turned up the following morning, um, which stuck in this gentleman's mind for various reasons. He said he was he was angry. Mm-hmm. He said he was upset. He said he felt let down, and he was also a bit confused as because the the plans were so solid, um, but they didn't eventuate. And so when Mr. Edwards eventually did turn up on the Saturday, he was immediately confronted by his friend. He said, "Where were you? What happened?" And Mr. Edwards' um, excuse, um, explanation was, I was trying to reconcile with my wife. Um, I've been trying to get hold of her. I wanted to sit down with her. And and last night, we managed to get together. But uh, the testimony of Mr. Edwards' wife at the time was that never happened. There was never one. and, And it wasn't. I think I've got the dates wrong. Um, it might have happened the weekend before, the weekend after. She said they never, ever had a sit down um, to reconcile of, of, of any description um, after she'd moved out and all the drama that we described um, in, in yesterday's episode. So, and that night, the night that Mr. Edwards didn't turn up, um, was the night that Kira didn't turn up when she was supposed to go home. And then, tragically, three weeks later, there's a young fellow, Jason Atkinson, and he's out walking in the bush in our northern suburbs, and he's doing something he probably shouldn't be doing at the time, um, and it leads him to a smell. Yeah. Um, so this is Eglinton. So this is almost equidistant north of Perth from where Wellard is south. A coastal suburb, again, not built up at all by then. It was it was dunes and sand and brush and, and nothing there apart from Mr. Atkinson hoped some possible rogue cannabis plants that he was out um, having a scout for. Um, he parked up, r- walked not far again off the off the track, but it, it was a fair way off the track and certainly down a hill so that couldn't be seen from the road. And as he was walking in this area, um, once again, the first thing that struck him was the smell. Then um, he, he he knew that that wasn't a smell of a rotting animal or, or, or something agricultural. This was worse. So he, he went to investigate, didn't get too close, but certainly got close enough. And again, in, in, in testimony that upset him, um, upset those some of those who were listening to it and certainly left an impression on all of us um, that he was sure of what he saw was a body um, and the reason he knew that was by the distinct um, curly light brown hair that he could see tucked in between two um, native Australian bushes um, and by now everyone um, in Perth had seen a picture of Kira Glennon um, and she had exactly that same hair light brown dyed um, tumbling down her back and uh, not that Mr. He, not that he immediately knew but he was was pretty sure of what he'd seen so he immediately retreated um, went to his girlfriend's um, workplace which is five ten minutes down the road told him what he'd seen the police immediately t- turned up took him back to there um, and he showed them the spot and uh, that was the spot that um, Kira was was found was dumped and uh, had been left for um, four weeks and the impact on him obviously was quite devastating um, as it has been for anyone who has been touched by the case in any way at all mm. and then so the next part of the trial moved to the police response at the crime scenes 
and it moved on to the post-mortems of the bodies. Mm. But this led to something that we had never seen happen in a court before. Yes. So um, it's always an ugly part of a court process, murder trial, um, but it's an absolutely necessary part. And in, and in this case, um, you couldn't have you wouldn't have a case without this part of the trial, which which is as you say, the the forensic um, team and uh, an effort that 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 swooped onto both Jane and Kira's crime scenes. Um, and it was it, it was like nothing Perth had ever seen before. Um, the discovery of Jane's body um, sent um, will basically sparked the task force that we've now been talking about for twenty odd years. It was nicknamed Macro at the time because police were absolutely convinced that Sarah and Jane were linked. They had a suspicion that they were also linked to Karakata. And then when Kira was discovered and had obviously been murdered. Um, taken from the same streets, dumped in the same way, covered in the same way, then that ramped up macro um, tenfold again. So we we are now in the midst of a of a of a of a panic, I suppose, a fear that had never gripped Perth before or probably since, because there is there is a serial killer um, loose on the streets, and there, and there is absolutely no doubt about this um, by by this time. Um, so Jane, uh, the response to Jane was uh, was was huge, um, intensive. You had um, police all over the place. You had multiple forensic pathologists, forensic team. Um, you had media. You had family. You had um, you know, and 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 it sparked thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pieces of information that that the police then had to sift through. But the main piece of information they had to go through was was Jane and 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 how she was being killed how had she been dumped where had she been dumped um, and the uh, unfortunate state of her body after 55 days left in the elements it was um, it was not pretty um, and that also obviously led to a uh, an in initial examination and then the following day a post-mortem which was um, videotaped and those videotapes obviously were kept and played in court and um, for um, evidentiary purposes not voyeuristic purposes again um crucial for the judge to see those but the judge himself ruled that it, that only him and the lawyers and the police that um, had already seen them should view them um for the sake of the dignity of jane and kira for the sake probably of the sanity of their very loved ones and for um to not protect us and the public but to shield the public which have been turning up in their droves at this trial from the the grim reality of what 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 the pathologists were dealing with um, but as i said yesterday the, the mere descriptions that you could hear the sound but you couldn't see mm -hmm. they screened all the screens off in the court um, did not show it on the big screens in court um, but even the sounds and certainly the descriptions of the processes that followed were enough to um, um, vividly um, illustrate um, exactly what the police and the pathologists and the investigators were were having to uh, having to deal with then and um, have been dealing with um, ever since. And this was quite uh, done quite hastily because you all turned up for court that morning, only for the judge to basically send the lawyers off to a shopping expedition mm. to find some way that they could shield anyone sitting in that courtroom from these pictures. Yeah, so the physical layout of the courtroom, we've been provided big screens because it's an electronic trial, lots of documents um, which the public um, have a right to see, I suppose, as evidence, and so they've been flashed up, as has all the video. But the screens in front of us and the public gallery where the lawyers sit, um, they display different material and certainly would have displayed the video material because the lawyers need to view it as it's being viewed by the judge. But the physical makeup of the court would mean that those at the back of the court would be able to see that maybe at a distance but they'll still be able to see it um, and the judge ruled that um, he didn't want them to see it you shouldn't have to see it 
Um, and so, as you say, you, you, you find little moments of brevity in such a serious trial. And this was one that you had very high paid, very experienced, <laughs> very highly trained lawyers um, literally jogging off to office works, a, a stationary based <laughs> um, shop uh, retailer in Perth um, to purchase four projector screens, which were then hastily erected between us and the lawyers. And they stayed there for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, so we could see the top of the lawyer's heads. We could see half of the witness in the witness box, but we could not see um, any of the screens um, uh, Justice Hall wasn't particularly enamoured with the physical setup, but it worked, and it and, and it only took half a morning to set up. So the trial was able to continue um, relatively quickly afterwards, and in, in a way that he was satisfied um, would, um, would would let everyone um, do their jobs without um, everyone um, being overly um, disturbed by by what what is obviously um, sensitive material. It was a lighter moment in the trial and there aren't a lot of them but this was one of those moments Mm. and at the time we talked about how this quite possibly had set a precedent not only in Western Australia Mm. or Australia but maybe even around the world. Well that's right I mean as you said now I've never seen it before Um, I mean judges are very um, cautious with what they let the public see and do and, 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 and hear in court um but this was a this was a very um hastily uh, uh, manufactured solution to a problem that to be fair pro- probably should have been um probably should have been thought about before it was but th- but there you are um and it also had to um take into account that mr edwards needed to see this material now he he certainly didn't want to see it we said yesterday he's been very sort of very static in court, hasn't shown much emotion at all. But um, apart from the home videos that we discussed, this is the only other moment that, that Mr. Edwards has really been demonstrative in court. And he was demonstrative in that he took his glasses off continually, um, refused or, or declined to look at the screen that had been set up especially for him because he needs the opportunity to see, you know, he doesn't have to. But he certainly um, needs to have the opportunity to see this material because it is evidence against him. Um, and that screen was pointed directly at him. Um, his security guards having that in their eyeline as well. Um, but um, but Mr. Edwards, as I say, um, mostly chose not to um, participate in that part of the trial, if I can put it that way, by by taking his um, his, his reading glasses off. Um, so even if that vision was in front of him, it would um, possibly not be uh, not be in as sharp a focus as it was for the rest of us. And you mentioned just how many police officers and what have you were involved when um, they discovered Jane Rimmer's body. And then, of course, by the time they discovered Kira Glennon's body, I mean, you really were talking about so many people were there, not just the police officers, but mm. the forensic teams. And, of course, the media and the mm. helicopters mm. are hovering around in the air. And even one of our colleagues, you know, found himself in a place where, you know, he wasn't meant to be. Mm. Yeah. So, once again, it cannot be stressed enough the this the scale of this story, the um, the impact of this story has has had on the city of Perth. And when Kira's body was discovered, this was obviously the third girl that was missing, the second that would, had confirmed been killed, murdered, um, brutally murdered, um, and dumped um, callously, dumped uh, far out of Perth, uh, but not far enough to. Uh, that it wasn't able, you weren't able to, able to get there in 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 double quick time. And uh, for Kira, particularly, everyone did. Um, the, the 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 police response was astonishing, even even by today's standards. Um, dozens of police officers, um, all all over um, the scene, um, so much so that they had to place cones down to direct. Uh, the all all the relevant um, authorities as to where to, to where to go. Um, roads blocked off either end and as you said Nat um, a media presence that the likes of which Perth had probably never seen before helicopters buzzing and one of our colleagues um, carrying some tripods for a cameraman that and, and bumped into literally a police officer in the middle of a dune who who quite sternly told him that, yeah. he, that he didn't need to be there and shouldn't be there quick smart um, but uh, and I mean, obviously, you can understand it's a it's a crime scene. It's a it's a crucial crucial time and a crucial crucial um, space. Um, but 
um, by now the police were 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 very aware of what the uh, the media reaction was, and they they held press conferences on at, at the scene. Um, they eventually did let cameras into the scene to take um, some shots of the scene or very close to. This is obviously after Kira's body has been removed, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and that scene. Um, even to this day, uh, remains uh, of interest um, and of significance, and a and a large white cross still sits there today at the at the spot that um, that the the unfortunate gentleman did find um, Kira's body. And what was so important about these scenes is this is where a great deal of the evidence, uh, the forensic evidence that would be used later, was taken and collected, mm-hmm. and. The part here, this is where the trial moved into the forensic side of thing, and this is where it took us to the post-mortems. And this really was, uh, in terms of evidence and in terms of this trial, a very difficult and very distressing part of the trial for the families involved, Uh, so much so that there was a very unusual and, again, a very hastily um, drawn-up suppression order put in place Mm. at this point in time. Yes, um, so... (laughs) The forensic evidence is the the, the main body of evidence um, against Mr. Edwards. One um, tiny piece of DNA evidence, which we'll come to in a, in a little while, that, that was discovered on on Kira's body. Um, but yes, uh, but the very nature of post mortems are they are um, hugely, almost um, unbelievably. Um, traumatic um, for those that, that are not um, directly involved with them but also obviously intrusive um, and and it got to a point during the trial that, that the, 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 the nature of the evidence was such that um, um, entreaties were made to the prosecution to limit the amount of um, material regarding intimate areas of the of the two young women that we could report on the 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 application was understandable it was that it was it was done a little bit on the run i think i'm fair to say in that but it was it it was understandable from a human point of view but it was also we felt as a media um contingent a little bit restrictive on what, what, what we were trying to do which was report fairly and accurately so uh, there was a little bit of to and fro between the court and the and and the, the us as the media and our lawyers and i i, I hope we came to a uh, uh, you know a relatively in the middle position where we were we were able to report uh, as much as we could um uh, as sensitively could as sensitively as we could without um going into areas that we really didn't need to go into which were unnecessarily distressing but uh, again that's that's the nature of 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 murder trials they are um uh, you know unfortunately inevitably um, distressing and out of that does come distressing um, material sometimes that's right and i guess the reality in this situation is that the question is were the women sexually assaulted mm. prior to their death mm. And, and that's why these intimate areas were being spoken about, um, but as delicately, delicately as possible. Mm. And I guess what we heard in the trial was that there was no evidence of sexual assault, not that it could be ruled out, though. Yeah, that's right. So uh, as we discussed yesterday, Mr. Edwards, we now know, is a sexual predator, violent sexual predator. Um, and uh, that these, uh, although Karakata was known of, it, it hadn't been directly linked um, forensically anyway. Um, but the assumption always was that the, these crimes were sexually motivated. The, the, the women were taken from the from the streets um, and away from um, their lives for a sexual purpose. Um, and so there was obviously a, a, a very important and very um, uh, focused part of the investigation particularly when the, the bodies were discovered and and, in, and those investigations were done um very very um thoroughly but as you said now nothing directly link uh, directly suggesting any uh, sexual crime against either of the the young women has, has ever been um categorically shown forensically there is there was there is no direct evidence to show that they were raped um or or anything like that and, and s- certainly no biological material on them um to suggest that they were raped um but 
that that does remain the the the, the way that the prosecution is pointing this case. And it has to because of the crimes that we now know Mr Edwards did commit. And what is interesting is that Kira Glennon was fully clothed mm-hmm. when her body was discovered in the bushes. Jane Rimmer was partially clothed. Well, Jane was naked, yes. There was no, there's, and none of her clothes have, have ever been discovered. We, we know of her watch. Um, so there were some other small jewelry, jewelry items that were on or about her body, but her clothes were gone and they've never been found. And so, and that, that is the, the one direct thing that the prosecution has pointed to to say, well, you know, why would a young 23 year old woman um, um, turn up dead and naked um, if it wasn't for. Um, the, her, her killer being sexually um, um, motivated um, towards her. So, but as you say, Kira was uh, fully dressed, pretty much, uh, t-shirt, skirt, um, all, all her underwear, um, and the, the, those clothes um, provide mm. some of the police and the investigators some of the best forensic evidence that they they say they have to prove that um, that it was Mr. Edwards that killed her. So we don't know if these women were or weren't raped, but what you did get more information on was their probable causes of death. Yes. Um, To put it bluntly, their necks were slashed, their throats were cut Um, in in similar ways. um, Kira at at the back of the neck, Jane at the front of the neck with a... A sharp instrument, almost certainly a knife, but we don't know of what type, of what length, of what um, girth. Um, And that was a a large part of the forensic evidence and certainly the pathologist's evidence, Dr. Karen Margolius, who who performed both um, post-mortem. She is now deceased herself, but her reports um, remain very detailed reports. And and again, for the first time in public, those wounds to the neck area of both women were... were, um, categorized in in great detail they were um, obviously large enough to cause um, significant damage most probable cause of death for both women Um, but the nature of the decomposition because of the time in the elements means that the precise length and and width of wounds cannot be um, cannot be determined because unfortunately um, the decomposition process means that any wound left open will will continue to open and um uh, and and that's what had happened in in both cases okay so let's take everyone through now the final phase of the case which is where we're at now and that's the dna can you talk us through the dna evidence that is crucial to the prosecution case Mm. well it is this is the heart um, and soul of the prosecution case so when Jane's body was um, discovered, obviously the police were very, very hopeful of getting um, as many clues off it as they could. Um, and they eventually did, um, but it took many, many years. And the same with Kira. Kira's post-mortem was, was done um, in, in so much detail um, and, and so closely observed um, by so many people. There were, there were almost a dozen people actually at the post-mortem, including two consultants from the FBI who had been brought in um, to uh, to help with the case um, in, in terms of profiling a possible killer. Um, those two gentlemen were even allowed in the room when the post-mortem was carried on. But it was done, obviously, properly, um, uh, but in great detail. And one of the first things that was done when Kira was being examined was her fingernails were cut, physically cut, it doesn't happen very often, but it did in this case. Sometimes they're swabbed, but in, in this case, Dr. Margolius, along with uh, other staff, decided to took, took, the, took the decision to cut the fingernails and place them individually into yellow top containers, which were then sealed, taped up, and, and sent off for storage. And they went off um, left thumb first, which became um, labelled AJM40, and in order... Um, they cut, so um, thumb, index, middle, ring, little finger, the left hand, same on the right hand, and they were labelled accordingly, AJM 40 to 49. Some of those fingernails were um, larger than others. The thumb and the middle finger on Kira's hand, left hand, were both broken, torn, disturbed in some way, particularly the thumb. It was almost ripped down to the quick, so much so that 
um, they had even trouble just getting a few clippings of it. There was that, that little left, but they persevered and they did. And those fingernails became quite important um, and were tested copiously over the years um, in various ways, DNA mostly, swabbing, extracting, and, and, and being tested and tested and tested as um, technology advanced. But 40 and 42, the, 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 the ripped ones, they were one of the least tested. 40 was never tested at all until it was sent off to the UK, 42 only twice. And they were all in little pots in storage and then in 2008 um, our now police commissioner Chris Dawson did, took, the, took the opportunity to review all the evidence and said what can we do that we haven't done before and they decided that 40 and 42 these two fingernails were of such a nature that they possibly could undergo this new type of DNA testing called low copy number which is it was being um, advanced and developed at that time and it t and it takes tiny tiny pieces of biological material so sometimes invisible to the naked eye pieces and is able to test them and that's what they did they sent it off to the uk to a lab called fss where a, a doctor called uh, dr jonathan whittaker was developing his low lcn testing and they did it um, they did it over several months it took a while it went over in the august the results didn't come back into December. But when the results did come back into December, they were the breakthrough that the macro detectives had been praying for for nearly 12 years because they found not only Kira's DNA, but they found a male DNA, an, mm -hmm. a, 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 an, an unknown male contributor. Um, his DNA had somehow got under the fingernails of Kira. And the supposition is now that they got under there when Kira fought for her life and that's why her fingernails were broken because she scratched and fought and tried desperately to um, to get this man off her unfortunately she failed obviously but what the prosecution say is that when she did that the tiniest part of Bradley Robert Edwards was left under her fingernail and that piece of Mr Edwards stayed there for 12 years and it was only found by this new advanced piece of DNA um, technology and so the results came back um, and there they sat they knew they had a man and they knew um, that this was the best and um, brightest lead that they'd had in, in 12 years what it also did was rule out the man that they had been looking at, a man called Lance Williams who had been the prime suspect um, to use a very commonly used phrase for the police for um, years. Mr. Ed Mr. Williams was a, you don't want to speak ill of the dead and he is dead now, but he was a weirdo. He was a public servant, but he, he also saw himself as a bit of a knight in shining armor. And, and after these girls started to go missing, he started driving around Claremont ostensibly to protect women, but the police were convinced that it was for another reason entirely, and it was him that had taken these women. So they focused on him for years and years and years and arrested him and interrogated him and surveilled him um, constantly. And this is a very sad aspect to this whole case because the reality is that Lance Williams, as you said, he was under constant scrutiny mm for a decade yep. and it it didn't matter how much he professed his innocence he gave tv interviews mm -hmm. as we know he spoke to Alison fan for hours um but he had no way of proving that he wasn't the guy mm -hmm. until this 2008 discovery in which case yep. as you've mentioned they yep. have a male profile mm, but not lance it wasn't but it's lance. not lance they had Lance's DNA. They'd, they'd sent Lance's DNA to um, various labs overseas, including FSS, because they were so convinced that, that, they, that they had their man and they just needed to prove it. Interestingly, as I said, information coming out of Claremont investigation was pretty sparse over the, mm. over the years. But interestingly, Lance's name um, leaked. Um, and were then was in the public eye for years and years and years and it pervaded into the public consciousness well if the police are so sure then it must be him and he was he, he was constantly um, not just surveilled by the police abused by the public yes um, mistrusted um, to such an extent that he became a, a recluse or at least a semi-recluse um, 
and uh, and when he did venture out um, he was daily confronted with accusations that he was a, that he was a serial killer yes but in 2008 as i say december just before christmas um they got the dna back they ran it through the database they compared it to him and it wasn't him and it was and it wasn't even close i mean there wasn't even one allele that that matched him but it did match someone else it matched the man who had raped the young lady in Karakata right. in 1995 so let's talk people through that and how they came up with the name then of Bradley Edwards. Mm. So this is in 2008. And they have this connection. So this, this, this poor young woman that had been so violated in, in, in 1995 and probed and prodded and questioned, she had to go through it all again in 2008. She was, she was re-interviewed. She had more intimate swabs taken. Because they now were certain that she was the one woman alive that had confronted the Claremont serial killer and survived. Um, and so they, 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 they did all the tests and, 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 and it came back and, and her DNA or her intimate swabs were sent to the UK to, to be retested and it came back the same. So they were sure that the man that attacked Kira attacked her. But they didn't have a name. And they didn't have a name for another eight years. Mm. Until cold case detectives in Perth in 2016, as it turned out, um, it was a little bit before that, they pulled out a box of an old case of a weird little break-in in Huntingdale. Which you'll remember from the previous podcast. When a teenage girl was jumped in her own bed. And you remember I said on the previous episode that he left something behind. Well, something behind was a kimono. A classic 80s silk kimono with a dragon on the back and a cord around the middle. Um, but this kimono was stained significantly. And in 2016, when the cold case detectives finally got it to Path West, which is our forensic lab, and they finally tested it. Um, not one, not two, not three. There was about five stains and they were all tested and they all came back as the same person. The person that had raped the young lady in Karakata in 1995 and the person that had murdered Kira Glennon in 1997, allegedly. So now they had three cases. This, is, this was on the 1st of December 2016 that they got these results back. It took them three weeks to the day to get from that discovery to knocking on Mr. Bradley Robert Edwards's door. But there were a few steps in between. They had, so they had this kimono but they also had all the other weird breakings that I told you about um, yesterday in, in the lead up to the to the attack in Huntingdale. So they went back and they pulled that box, and in that box was a was a was a was a fingerprint that I mean latent fingerprint, partial fingerprint, hardly there, but it was there on on a back sliding door where someone had tried to break in, and so they they had this fingerprint, and they also had the national fingerprint database called AFIS. So they took that fingerprint, ran it through the database, and lo and behold, Bradley Robert Edwards, a fingerprint that had been taken from him when he attacked the hospital worker in Hollywood Hospital in 1990. And so they had a name. After 23 years, they had a name. But they still didn't have him, really. Mm. I mean, they had a name, they had his DNA. I mean, they had plenty. But they still needed to be sure, sure. So what they did is they um, they told the boss, we need uh, um, as many officers as you can spare to look to watch this guy. Um, and that's what they did. They watched. They began watching him round the clock. Um, and they saw a regular guy living with his stepdaughter, working at Telstra, um, so regular that um, that he, he took his daughter to the um, to the cinema. Yeah. Um, and uh, they followed him there. And after he'd watched the movie, he, he, he discarded a, the bottle of Sprite that he'd, that he'd bought um, previously and drunk through the movie. And they picked out that bottle of Sprite from the bin and they rushed it off to Path West and, and, and were able to extract the DNA from that bottle top. And, and lo and behold, it came back exactly the same as um, Karakata and as Kira. Uh, and so... Um, Basically, the next day, um, heavily armed police knocked on his door. Probably didn't knock. They were probably a little less polite than yes. that. Um, and kept Mr. Edwards um, in his house while they um, cautioned him, arrested him, and then 
about 12 and a half hours later charged him with the murders of 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 Jane Rimmer and Kira Glenn and a, a buzz went around Western Australia like we had never seen before mm. after all of these decades we had waited and waited and finally the police charged someone now Bradley Edwards as we know he went on to admit guilt to the Karakata rape and the Huntingdale attack. Bradley Edwards admits that he is a rapist. He denies that he is a murderer. Mm. And the defence say that his DNA that you've just told us about under the fingernails of Kira Glennon are there because of cross-contamination between these cases. Yeah. Um, they, we, that's exactly right, Nat. So uh, the DNA as I say, is the, the, the heart and soul of the, the prosecution case and it, also is, it becomes the heart and soul of the defence case. And the defence case, as we understand it so far, it hasn't been laid out in detail, but as we understand it so far, is that the uh, DNA from Mr Edwards didn't get under Kira's fingernail um, because um, it, she was fending him off. It got under into Kira's fingernail because it, it had come into contact with Mr Edwards's other DNA sample, which from the Karakata rape, which had um, sat in the same lab since it had been um, extracted from the victim of Karakata in 1995. And they say somehow that sample from 1995 and Kira's sample in 1997 have come into contact or trace contact or somehow become cross-contaminated. Um, and that is what we've spent the last six weeks of the trial um, cogitating, digesting, getting our heads around because uh, Mr. Paul Jovic, who's the lead defense barrister, has taken us to many, many other examples where he can show that exhibits and samples in this case, in the macro investigation, have been contaminated in Pathwest somehow or other. Um, but it is whether he can show, or more pertinently, whether the prosecution can disprove the theory that uh, AJM 42 and AJM 40 somehow became contaminated, um, which will go a long way to um, deciding Mr. Edwards's uh, guilt or innocence. And if you're very interested in this part of the trial, uh, in the DNA and the process and the detail, because it has been extraordinarily detailed. We do have a resident DNA expert, Brendan Chapman, who gives a very good explanation of how the DNA works, how they tested it, how they came up with their results. And if you're interested in that, that part of the trial starts at episode 35, and that's called A Lesson in DNA. So this really brings you to where we are now in the case. We're not into the fibre evidence yet, but that's what's coming next, right, Tim? Mm, yes. Um, so I a few moments ago, I mentioned um, Kira's clothes. I haven't mentioned Kira's hair and Jane's hair uh, because uh, um, that is the, 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 the trial to come. The prosecution say that fibres found in Kira's hair, in Jane's hair, um, on Kira's clothes, and, and most pertinently or certainly very importantly on the Karakata victim's clothes, all link to Mr. Edwards. And the way they can say that is because they, there are two very distinctive fibres that they say were found on all three of those women. Some blue fibres, which were absolutely unique to the type of work wear pants and shorts that Mr. Edwards would have been wearing in 95 and 96. And fibres from his car, a particular type of car, a Telstra, uh, Commodore, station wagon, certain make, certain model. Um, that was driven by Mr. Edwards in 96 and 97. Uh, the prosecution say those two fibres they can show are unique to those two sources and they are exactly the same as the fibres that were found on Jane's hair, Kira's hair, Kira's clothes and the shorts that were worn by the Karakata victim. And so that is tiny but um, very important physical evidence that links um, uh, Mr. Edwards and all those three victims um, which, again, um, if the prosecution can prove beyond a reasonable doubt, will go a long way to prove that Mr Edwards is, is the killer of these three women. 
Well, Tim, that um, is a massive overview of the past three months. Thank you so much. And really, that brings you up to speed now. You could start following now and you really have heard uh, a very comprehensive summary of what we've heard and what Tim has heard in court every single day. If you are interested in having more of those details, you can go back to the start. So that's season two episode one and you will be able to hear everything that Tim's just talked to you about in much greater detail, witness names, who was in court each day, exactly what uh, he heard and what he's reported to us through this podcast. So thank you for joining us and for those of you who are following the trial, stay tuned. Next week we will be back. Uh, Court has a couple of days off and then that fibre evidence that Tim was just talking about will begin then. So thank you so much. We'll talk to you later for the next week of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Flashpoint, returning to Seven on Mondays at 9pm. Demanding change and discussing issues that matter to West Australians.